The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Jeannie Rizzo. She is a registered nurse, president, and CEO of the Breast Cancer Prevention Partners. Their mission is to prevent breast cancer by eliminating our exposure to toxic chemicals and radiation linked to the disease. Breast Cancer Prevention Partners is celebrating its 25th year, and under Ms. Rizzo's leadership, the organization continues its commitment to strong science, smart public policy, and consumer education. Ms. Rizzo is co-founder of the Cancer-Free Economy Network and a recipient of many awards, most recently the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences Champion of Environmental Health Research Award. A nurse, then an award-winning music, theater, and film producer, Ms. Rizzo also produced the documentary Climb Against the Odds, Mount McKinley, which chronicles Breast Cancer Prevention Partners' 1998 expedition. Welcome, Ms. Rizzo. It's an honor to have you with me. Well, thank you, Melinda. I'm really happy to be here. You know, I was intrigued by your organization after receiving an annual report, 2017, a year in review, and I saw that you had recently published a brand new state of the evidence looking at environmental contaminants that are linked to breast cancer. I was also inspired by several of your YouTube presentations, which our listeners can listen to. We can provide some links to those in which you describe growing up in this age of plastic, better living through chemistry. Your father worked in the plastic industry. We both grew up with mothers who had Tupperware parties. And here we are decades later with increasing rates of breast cancer among women and even men and among younger and younger women, and we share a concern. How did you go from being a psychiatric nurse to getting involved in breast cancer prevention? Well, that's not as big a leap as it might seem. Being a a psychiatric nurse and then actually going into the movie business and then thinking about my advocacy all throughout my entire life. I've always been an advocate for something, some social injustice or something I've been concerned about. And I always think of myself as contributing to the production of the movement, right? Having things work towards health and producing something that works for people, that people can be interested in, that whether it's their own health or a piece of theater they want to go see or hear or music, or in this case, how can you communicate in a way that the public responds and understands that there really is something in it for me to pay attention to these environmental exposures. I I certainly have known many women who've gone through breast cancer, and when I got involved with this organization, it really was to help produce a film to raise attention about the idea that it is more than a walk in the park. Breast cancer is a huge mountain. We have to keep our eye on the summit. We have to be roped together. We have to work as a team. And can we prevent this disease? I was intrigued by that. 
and that's how I got involved to begin with and then stepped in when the, the founder had a, a brain tumor and, and passed away. But I stepped in because it felt like the right moment to help bring together environment, health, public health, and community engagement. So it was it, it actually didn't feel like a big leap. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that since we both come from public health fields, we are based in this notion of prevention. And unfortunately, our medical system does not seem to be so focused. So for example, we find that there are many chemicals in our environment. And in this political climate, rather than being more aware and more careful in their regulation, we seem to see our regulatory bodies not protecting us, but protecting the corporations that produce these chemicals. What can we do from a prevention perspective to protect not only ourselves, but future generations? Well, obviously, we do need good public policy. We need not to be at odds with the government whose job it is to to protect us and to regulate to regulate things in a way that that protect us and prevent harm. So we do have a significant and serious issue with our current administration and their policies on environment and health and public health, access to health care, regardless of whether we can even add prevention to that conversation. The thing that moves it is public demand, whether it's public demand for safer products or public demand for better better governors, better legislators, better administrations. We have to be active in that. Unless we take that seriously, unless we vote our values, we will not wind up with with the kind of protection and prevention that we need. We can do things in commerce, as I said. We can make decisions about what we buy when we can. We can buy organic when we can, whenever we have an opportunity for organic, local, sustainable. We can make choices not to use something or not to buy something. To If you can't read the label and it just has the word fragrance and you don't know what's in it, don't buy it. So we can actually move business in our direction probably right now more readily than we can get our government to do something until we have a different government, until we have different people in charge of that. Yeah. Well, I think that it can feel overwhelming at times. And I think it's important to have this perspective of focusing in on maybe one thing that we can do or work for rather than seeing so many of the environmental toxins coming our way. I know that we have looked at fracking chemicals, for example. We've looked at environmental contaminants in our food system. We've looked at environmental contaminants in our medical supplies, in our agriculture. How do you help people find a place to begin? Well, I think the first thing is that reflection on what's personally important to you, what resonates for you. If you've got kids in a school and you're worried about the playground, then Work on that. Work with your local school. Think about what they're being exposed to. Are there pesticides on the lawns at the school? Think about that. If it's more a matter of how you shop, take one room at a time. Take your kitchen 
or your bathroom or your one room and say, okay, how am I going? I'll detox that room. I won't buy things that contribute toxic chemicals to my living space. I'm at least going to control that. I'm going to purchase cleaning supplies that don't have toxic chemicals in them. I'm going to think about that today. So you you just take a small bite of it, take something, feel successful with it, share that with your friends, ask people about it, ask them what they know. There's a there's a great little app called Think Dirty that you can scan in personal care products and it'll give you a score on it. Make the choices about what you use in personal care, which they're pretty much discretionary. I know we all feel all those things are vital and essential to our life, health, and beauty, but we can make better decisions about that. We don't have to buy the nail polish. If it smells so bad, should we be using it? If we go into a beauty salon and and the worker has to wear a mask, is that a good thing? Do we want to support that? Do we want to endorse that? You can make those decisions every single day and just pick something that particularly resonates for you. Yeah, you know, I can think of my own history when I was younger, how much I loved fragrances. And then, of course, I learned about the chemicals that carry those fragrances. And, oh, just turns out they happen to be endocrine disruptors. Or these are compounds, as you know, that affect our hormone systems. And then, of course, there's hair dye. There are all of these beauty products. I think my mother, who had breast cancer herself, used cadmium-laced red lipstick So many of our cosmetics are tainted, as well as our medicines. I was looking in the drugstore the other day, and even some of the personal care products that are designed for women contain parabens, which are carcinogenic. How do we get these compounds out of cosmetics and pharmaceuticals? You know, it's going to cost the pharmaceutical manufacturer money to reformulate their products, but do you think that with enough consumer demand, they will change? Absolutely. And I think when we've worked with companies, company, I'll, I'll take Campbell's as an example, the bisphenol A and the lining of food cans. Mm. And, you know, the first response is, well, it'll cost money. We don't have a safer alternative. And you have the, the business model that says, it's going to cost us more to figure out how to get that out of there. And you've got the legal department that really doesn't want to admit that there's a toxic chemical in the company's product. And then you have the people who are advancing the brand of that company. And it's very important to them that the brand not be tarnished. So when we expose Johnson & Johnson baby shampoo for having a carcinogen in it, 1,4-dioxane, and this has got to be 12, 13 years ago, They figured out how to get that out of there and reformulated. The last thing that they wanted was a a product with a carcinogen in it, which was easy enough to strip out. It was part of the process that created this carcinogen, the process of making the shampoo soft and, and soapy. It's possible. So if the company feels that they will be harmed, their brand will be harmed, and the consumers will be unhappy with their brand, they will reformulate. They have the money to do that. Right. If they're going to lose sales or their brand will be tarnished. So the idea is you want to support the good companies that are investing the additional money in doing that, that are doing the right thing, whether it's seventh generation doing the right thing on cleaning products or the honest company or a company making safer cosmetics, you want to support that and you want to make it clear to the other companies that they better measure up. 
So I think we can make a difference. And I think that in this day and age when so many of us have access to social media and the Twitter sphere, we really do have a great tool on our side for spreading the message about brands that don't play well. Exactly. It's there. We can let them know. I, hey, I looked at this. I wonder what's in your fragrance. Also communicating to the companies, if you're just in the mood to send one of those outrageous notes or emails. You know, we, we went through this uh, in a campaign with L'Oreal having to do with fragrance disclosure, and, and we had some success with that. The companies are about to be much more transparent about what they're putting in there because the consumer is demanding it. And when we go back, you were talking about the state of the evidence. That's how we actually affirm the need for a prevention model when we ask the question, are there connections between toxic chemicals and breast cancer? And overwhelmingly and increasingly over the last 15 years, absolutely. And so every year or two, we publish state of the evidence demonstrating that there are definite connections. You mentioned parabens. Those are endocrine-disrupting chemicals. There's phthalates. There's bisphenol A. There's classes of chemicals that trick our body into thinking it's been exposed to a natural hormone, and it acts accordingly. And those hormones fuel breast cancer cells. So, And that's just breast cancer. There's a number of other cancers. There's all kinds of neurotoxics that contribute to asthma and learning disabilities and autism that we're also concerned about. So if you pick an area you're interested in, you can find a toxic chemical to worry about and to do something about. Let me take one moment, Jeannie, and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Jeannie Rizzo. She is a registered nurse and CEO of the Breast Cancer Prevention Partners. I want to get to the State of the Evidence 2017 report because it is an excellent body of evidence that I think we all should become familiar with, with regard to where these compounds are found. And of course, when these compounds are tested, they're never tested in combination. So as a nurse, you understand synergies with combinations of compounds. Explain to our listeners, if you would, this idea of epigenetics. How do chemicals work at an epigenetic level? Well, there's communications between your cells. There are chemicals that trick your cells and talk to your cells, and they get them to behave in certain ways that are abnormal. You know, you can take a carcinogen, a flat-out carcinogen. You can take a formaldehyde or radiation, and you can actually watch cells mutate in the presence or in the exposure to that. Then there's something that actually changes the design and the communications within the cells that actually gives false messages to the cells that can that can then actually be passed on generation to generation. So epigenetics is not like the inherited gene problem that you know if you talk about the breast cancer gene and you know there's a gene and it's a you think of it as a gene that's passed on, it's actually the inability of that gene to turn off breast cancer. That's what BRCA is. It's the inability of that. So epigenetics is side-by-side with genetics. But what it is is it's changing your cell's behavior by the way it's communicated with. So I think that we talk a lot about endocrine-disrupting chemicals and chemicals that aren't direct carcinogens but that 
contribute to how the cells speak to each other, how your genes are affected and how they can actually pass on. So you have DES, for example. Everybody remembers or might remember women who are exposed to and used DES back in the day to prevent miscarriage or whatever they were using. It was a hormonal treatment. Well, two generations later, you have people who have breast cancer. You have women with breast cancer because it just changed what happens in the communication in those cells. So it's complicated, but it's real, and it's something for you to worry about and something for you to think about when you think about what you're being exposed to and and how you can protect yourself. And also to be aware that there are windows of vulnerability. So this is especially an important message for women of childbearing years, women who are mothers of young children and individuals in their teenage or adolescent period, any time, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's my understanding that any time we have periods of rapid cell growth and division, we are more susceptible. Absolutely. So in pregnancy, in utero, during pregnancy, early childhood, right before and during puberty, right before and during your pregnancy and lactation, your cells are in a state of rapid growth, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about how in nine months what happens in utero. That's a level of growth. They're just going frantically. They're moving really fast. Things are happening really fast. And any interruption, any violation of that process can set off a cascading effect of cell mutations and messaging So when you think about, when we're talking about the idea that you've got genes that have a way that they express themselves and the way they're supposed to behave, and then you interfere with that, you're creating a different messaging cycle. So someone exposed to certain chemicals in utero or in early childhood are set up for perhaps early puberty and then perhaps for later life breast cancer. So there are exposures in utero that are contributing to the fact that young girls are going through puberty earlier and earlier. You don't need science to tell you that that's true. Right. You see it. And the puberty is not necessarily in the order that nature wants it to be. It comes in a in a distorted way. Girls are having breast budding at the age of four, but then might not be menstruating until eight or nine or they might they might be menstruating at ten but then their breasts aren't developing. It's all there's a cacophony of of mistakes that are happening as a result of the chemicals that they were exposed to. So there are very definite windows of susceptibility along the life course that not only create the actual cancer but they could set you up for it in later life. So it's a very important field of study just as epigenetics is a very important field of study that's emerging and is giving us much more information than we used to have, but we just need to be listening to it. Right. You know, it's interesting. I think so many of the messages that we receive focus on finding a cure. Even Vice President Joseph Biden's moonshot, the whole mission was find a cure. And to me, we need to be working much farther upstream. And I know that you recently spoke at the Young Survival Coalition. And I could just imagine you looking out onto a sea of Mm. young faces. And it's one thing to develop cancer when we're older, when our children are grown. 
It's quite another to develop cancer before we've had children, during childhood, during times when we should be enjoying our youth. We're fighting a battle. And it seems to me that our emphasis as adults in a society should be to protect those most vulnerable citizens. What stories did you hear that you want to bring forth from that Young Survival Coalition? I think the thing that amazed me when we we shifted our mission to solely focus on prevention in 2001 and also is repeated often and very dramatically at the Young Survival Coalition to meet with those young women. And we're talking about women under 40, and that is young to have breast cancer. But there were 23-year-olds, 25-year-olds, women who had already had recurrences before the age of 40, is we have to know that we do something in our lifetime is the way that they approach it, that perhaps we could avoid a recurrence or perhaps we could be healthier as we endure this disease that we've been saddled with at the age of 27, that all of the things that we talk about in terms of primary prevention, which is preventing it before it even starts by eliminating those things that create it, that cause it, even that perpetuated or accentuated in women with the BRCA gene. You know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, a woman's lifetime risk if she had the BRCA gene was at X. Now it's five times greater than that because environment compounds the risk that the woman with BRCA endures. So I think what the young survivors were talking about is that we have to believe that we're doing something and we understand what might have contributed to it. One, because we're unwitting. We were unwilling. It's not like we did something. We, we don't want to feel like victims, right? And we also don't want to feel blamed. We want to do the best we can now to protect our health and to protect our sisters, our friends, our children if we have any, or God forbid, as many of them have said, now we can't have a child. But my sister has a child, and I don't want that girl to endure what I've endured. So I think the activism amongst the young survivors is pretty amazing to me and very heartening. And their stories are just gut-wrenching because they're every year when they come back for that convention, that convening, some of them are not coming back. A number of them aren't mm. because being diagnosed young is a much higher mortality rate, much higher risk of a recurrence and metastatic cancer and not surviving at a young age. So it's it's tragic, and we're seeing more and more of it. Right. You know, Jeannie, much of my work has been focused on food and agriculture. And you live in California. Much food is produced there. I live in the Midwest. We have a lot of commodity crops grown here yeah. and a lot of agricultural chemicals. And it It always surprises me when I hear people say, we need these chemicals to produce our food. Somehow we need these toxic compounds to feed the world, or we don't even talk about them, or we talk about them in terms of what's on my plate, rather than looking at vulnerable populations who are working in agriculture. And some of the young women I know who are dealing with breast cancer right now actually were raised in agricultural environments. You know, we think these rural communities are so pristine when actually they're quite risky. And I wonder if you have any words of advice in terms of how do we work with 
the bigger system that is telling us that we need to produce food in this industrial way? Well, I think that's part of why groups of us started a network called the Cancer-Free Economy Network. And there's about 140 organizations across all spheres of environment, health, public health, labor, agriculture, business, grassroots groups, environmental justice, where we're trying to come up with a common narrative, a narrative that can move some of these things. So, for example, in Southern California, there's a a great group called Chamacos, and they work Mm -hmm. with farm worker families, and they work on everything from when you leave the field and you come home, you don't come in with your clothes on and your shoes on, right? You know, you literally don't bring it into the house. Uh, how to mitigate the exposures while they're actually happening and how to protect the rest of the family from those exposures. And then how to measure what those exposures are so they can go back and demonstrate that these horrible um, pesticides are contributing to their illness. So I think as an occupation, certainly farm workers have a tremendous amount of exposure. And we have an expectation of our shelves being filled over and over again and our things being able to be transported all over the country because we all have to have that tomato from this part of the country or that. And really working on the slow food movement and the local and sustainable movement is just imperative. Now, I don't know. It's it's one thing to work on that in California. It's another thing to try to work on that in the Midwest where you're really, I mean, we certainly have industrial farming here, but you're really in the in the heart of it. So I think it takes those who are not in that field lending themselves and their currency and their support, their advocacy and their finances to those people who are the most exposed. And that's true on every social movement in this country. All of us who have a privilege have an obligation. Whether I couldn't it's, agree more. Uh, the person who's living near fracking or whose community was built on a toxic dump site or they're farm workers, we have an obligation. If I have an option to buy organic and to not be exposed to these things, then I have a responsibility to those who are vulnerable. That's the way I, I see it. I see that as our moral obligation to find one thing that we know we can protect ourselves from that somebody else can't and find a way to support them. We have a long and arduous road ahead of us in looking at some of the policies and what's going on with our regulatory agencies and even access to health care, Jeannie. I want to refer all of our listeners to your fantastic website. I'll provide a link to that. I'll provide a link directly to the State of the Evidence 2017 report so that we can be better informed about which chemicals and toxins to particularly avoid. Would you like to leave our listeners with a message, or is there something that I neglected to bring forth from our interview that you'd like to talk about? No, you're great, Melinda, and I'm so glad you're doing this work, and I'm so glad that there are people listening who want to make a difference in their personal lives. I think you can do something personally. You can make a difference in your own family, in your own home, in your own workplace, and I think that always sounds, it's not trite, it's real. You really can. You can really apply your passion to this because we're in a world right now where we feel some of the big problems can't be solved, but we can actually do something, and I'm just going to say, inform yourself and vote. Yes. 
I really think that those of us concerned about food have to think about how we nourish our politics in a positive way. If we're concerned about personal care products, how do we control them? And how we control them is who we elect. So I think that that's a, a very important and imperative message for us to all take seriously right now. Absolutely. Jeannie, I want to thank you so much for not only your work, but for carving out time in your busy day for me today. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. And especially, I want to thank Ms. Jeannie Rizzo, registered nurse, president and CEO of the Breast Cancer Prevention Partners, as well as co-founder of the Cancer-Free Economy Network. We will provide links to both of those organizations be informed and remember your wise words. When we have privilege, we have obligation. Thank you so much, Ms. Rizzo. Thank you. Thank you.